All right, are you in Romans chapter 12? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for your word and that it, it sharpens us and that you gave us your word so that we would get to know you more. We'd be able to see what you're like and what your character is like. And Father, we, we want to draw near to you. We pray that, that we would allow the word to read us and we'd allow it to shape us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, we refer to joining the military as answering the call to serve our country. Any veterans in the room today, thank you for your service. So We're so thankful for you. But we refer to joining the military as answering the call to serve our country. And each person who hears that call has to make a very serious decision. The very act of putting on the uniform means that the person has, has, has accepted the possibility that they might die defending us. And they choose to put our safety ahead of their own when you sign up for the military. And joining the military means making radical changes to your lifestyle. When you sign up for the military, you, you make radical changes to your lifestyle. You, you join a community. You join a community of men and women who are like-minded, who have decided to give their lives for our country as well. And you're taught to submit and work cooperatively with others. You develop special skills that others on your team will depend on. Am I right? You're trained to endure hardship when you join the military. And you form deep loyalties towards one another to such a degree that many are, are willing to risk their own lives to rescue one of their own who's been injured or captives. When you join the military, you make radical changes to your lifestyle. And in Romans chapter 12, Paul makes it clear that God expects this same level of commitment from us toward his church, believe it or not. Following Jesus places profound demands upon us. Last week we talked about what it means to be radical and to to serve people with 100% grace and also 100% truth. Not 50% grace, 50% truth, but 100% grace, 100% truth. To be radical, but also to be winsome. To have a demeanor, to, have, uh, to, to be attractive and appealing to the outside world. That you're radical, your fa- you're radical to, to, with your faith. That you, you will stop at nothing to spread the gospel of Jesus. To give people the truth of the gospel. But at the same time, your attitude and your demeanor is appealing and attractive to others. Because you exude the grace of God. The love of God. The joy of God. And when people look at your life, they see somebody who is winsome and radical. And today we're going to talk about uh, not just our relationships outside of the church, that the people outside of the church should look inside the church and see winsome radicals. But today we're going to focus on the relationship that we're supposed to have together as a church family. Following Jesus places profound demands upon us. What is asked of us is in many ways more than what's asked of a soldiers. When you say yes to Jesus, we too are asked to commit ourselves to one another and to have courage under fire. We too accept the possibility that we might die fulfilling our duty. And this is especially true, not so true in America, but it's especially true for our brothers and sisters who are sharing the gospel in, in countries that are hostile towards Christians. But we too must learn to submit to one another and work as a team. We have to be cooperative with one another. 
We too have special skills given to us which others on our team depend on. How many of you know that the Holy Spirit has given gifts to each one who follows Jesus? And it's not the same gifts as everybody else in the room. And we depend on you to develop those skills, to develop that gift of the Holy Spirit and use it to edify and strengthen, to comfort and to encourage the church. We too must learn to endure hardships. And we too must form deep loyalties to the point where that we risk our own lives to rescue one who is injured or who has been captured. When we see a brother or sister who is hurting, who has been captured, who is who is being held captive by the enemy, we risk our lives. We put our own lives on the line to go after them, to seek them out, and to provide help where help is needed. Like the military, we do all of this to save others. And in our case, people's eternities depend on us fulfilling our duty. It's the gravity of our faith that there's eternity at stake. Eternal lives are at stake. And in Romans 12, Paul gives the church a series of instructions. And it's important to note that what Paul says in Romans 12, these are not suggestions, church. These are not, hey, these might be good things to do. No, these are not suggestions. These are commands that Paul is giving to the church. So before we read, there's a little bit of background here. Paul wrote the letter of Romans in about A.D. 58, and Nero at the time was emperor over Rome. And in A.D. 64, about six years after this book was written, there was a fire that burned a huge portion of the city, and Nero blamed the Christians on starting the fire. And so a huge persecution broke out against Christians all over the city, and many were forced out, many fled for their lives, and many Christians were brutally murdered and persecuted for their faith in Jesus. Becoming a follower of Jesus was extremely dangerous at this time. When Paul writes this letter, becoming a follower of Jesus wasn't Hey, let's show up on Sunday, raise our hand. Great, you got your golden ticket, you're in the club. Welcome to the club. That's not how it was. When you decided to say yes to Jesus, you were making a commitment to put your life on the line, to, in most cases, uh, disassociate from your family. Your family would, would typically reject you. Children who came into the faith were being abandoned by their parents, and their and the parents who believed were being sold out by their children. And for many people, the family of Christ was the only family they had left. So it was really important to obey Paul's instructions. When he tells the church this in Romans 12, we're going to start at verse 9. He says this, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. <clears throat> be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor. Serving the Lord. Verse 12, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord, share with the Lord's people who are in need and practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn, live in harmony with one another, and do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. 
Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. If it is possible, uh, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Verse 20, on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul gives the church instructions on how to be a family. There are people coming into the faith in this point in time who are being abandoned by their families. They are putting their lives on the line. They are entering a, a, a decision that now the culture around them is hostile towards them. And Paul makes this especially important. He says to love one another like family. That when he says to, to show honor, what he says is to outdo one another. That Greek word means to go first. That if someone isn't showing you honor, it doesn't matter the level of respect or honor that is being shown to you. He's saying you go first. You show honor first. Outdo one another in showing honor. In zeal, serve the Lord. He's saying don't become inactive, but keep burning in your spirit. Keep pursuing the Lord. He says... In hope, we can rejoice by maintaining an eternal perspective. That, yeah, the world might be burning all around us. There might be chaos all around us. We might be oppressed on all sides. But keep an eternal perspective. That we are part of a greater story. That God has given us a greater picture. He says, in affliction, patiently endure. In prayer, don't quit. Stay strong. Don't stop praying. Keep praying. He says, generously share what you have with impoverished believers actively find sheltered actively find and shelter widows and the sick and the homeless go out seek them out get out of your comfort zone and go find those people is what he's telling them he says bless those who persecute you don't curse them open up share your lives with each other both the good times and the bad and then he says don't let worldly thinking control the way that you value people just because they're evil to you. Don't return evil with evil. But instead, if you see your enemy hungry, feed your enemy. If you see them thirsty, give a drink to your enemy. That's a radical notion. That is a, a, a radical idea. The church is a community of people with an assignment. We gather to worship. We gather to hear God's word. But we do not exist for ourselves, do we? We do not exist to serve ourselves. God saves us. He heals us. He strengthens us with the understanding that we will take our place in his church to help save and heal and strengthen those who are lost. And here's a terrible truth that we have to face, church. That if I don't do my part, there may be people who never find God. We tend to think... If I don't share Jesus with someone, I'm sure God's going to use another person. That God may put it on your heart. You may be walking around Safeway or Walmart, and God says, hey, I want you to go show my love to that person. And if you think in your mind, well, oh, God, now's kind of a bad time. I'm in a hurry. Or what if they reject me? What if they say, what if I, you know, what if they think poorly of me? 
Somebody else will come along, though, God. If I don't do it, God, I'm sure you'll put it on somebody else's heart to go talk to that person. Listen, you are God's plan A. The church is God's plan A, and he didn't come up with a plan B. The church is God's plan A. He has called his church, he's called his children to partner with him in restoring the earth back to its original design and share the love of God with people. You are God's plan A. And this is why loving each other, being committed to one another, caring for each other, these aren't just nice things to do. They're vital, absolutely vital, because people's destinies are at stake. Americans are so incredibly independent, aren't we? We are so incredibly independent, and, and, and so passages like these are hard to hear. And if I'm honest with you, maybe you think like me, but I, when I read this, I have a difficult time believing Paul really means what he says. And many of us, we're not even sure if this level of relationship can exist in the church today. Because we're all just messed up people, aren't we? We are so broken. We are so consume some of us with bitter and resentment and pride. Some of us don't think that relationships can be like this in the church today. And so our, in our minds, we dismiss his words as something that isn't possible anymore. And now we're just waiting for the return of Christ because when Jesus comes and everything will be perfect, we'll be like real family. But until then, there's just going to be problems, right? There's going to be issues. Am I the only one who thinks like this? Is anybody else with me? You tracking with me? But if it's really impossible for Americans to commit themselves to a church and to love one another like a family, then the church will only continue to decline and fewer people will come to know Jesus. The forces of consumerism and individualism and independence, they're too strong for any one person. But this is what we do. We love our independence. We love our individualism. We love to say, I'm just going to do it myself. I don't need to tell anybody what's going on in my life because that's just going to make a mess. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to pray a little bit more, read my Bible a little bit more. I'll take care of it. And once I have a few years of victory, I might share a little bit with somebody to let them in on what's going on. But for now, I'm just going to deal with it myself. And so we isolate and we stay at a distance from our church community, we stay at a distance from people really getting to know us, really getting to know what's going on. This is how we live our lives. In America, the American dream is I started at the bottom and now look where I am and I did it all by myself. I, I worked hard. I invested my money. I built a business from the ground up and I didn't need anybody else to do it. I was successful and we look at those people and go, wow, look what that person did. Look what that person accomplished all by himself. He didn't have any help. He didn't have anybody surrounding him and we praise those individuals. But the church was never meant to function like that. We were saved into a family, saved into a community. Thankfully, it only takes a small, committed minority, perhaps in the middle of the Washington desert, to turn the tide. It only takes a small minority to turn the tide. Many pastors have described the past two years as a great sifting in the church. What do I mean by that? This season of the pandemic and political unrest and all these things that happened in the last two years, 
the season provided a convenient out for people who had a lukewarm faith or who weren't truly committed to being part of the church of Jesus, being part of a church family. And as church buildings reopened, many people decided to stay away or even determined that a church community wasn't really necessary for their faith. I can, I can, I have handfuls of friends. I can, I can name a dozen friends off the top of my head who decided in the last two years I was part of a church, but then I realized that I don't need church to have a relationship with God. I don't need a community of faith to have a relationship with our God. And again, that goes back to our American individualism. I don't need anybody else to have a relationship with God. Now, there's a little bit of truth in there that God wants to speak to you as an individual. He wants to grow you as an individual, but you were never meant to exist in a silo, to exist in a vacuum. God saved you into a family, into a community. But I know so many people who have decided that, you know what, it's just, it's just nicer to stay away. I can do so much more on Sunday mornings now. Many people left their churches because their political beliefs trumped the biblical instructions that Paul gives us. Yeah, I know the Bible says to love one another, have patience with one another, and, and to, to help one another grow. But listen, that person believes way differently than me, and so I'm out. I can't be a part of this. And people have left their churches because their political beliefs trump the biblical instructions that are given to us. And I believe God is using this season to make sure that the ones who remain become spiritually mature. He is taking people, he is taking his children to a new level of maturity, to a new level of growth. And as we get closer and closer to Jesus' return, I believe that Jesus is taking the church where only mature believers can go. That's, that's not arrogance to say, well, look at us. The ones, we're the mature ones because we're here. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying God wants to do something new in his church. He wants to, by his grace, remove the lukewarm spirit that has penetrated the church to remove the apathy and the complacency that has crept into the church. He wants to do away with it. So that he has a few people who are sold out, dedicated to him. I did not say that we're perfect believers. That he's making a group of perfect believers. He's making us mature, but he's not making us. We are going to be made perfect eventually when Jesus comes back. But I'm not saying that we're perfect now. I'm referring to believers who understand that loving one another that caring for one another is more important than having your political opinions aligned. And this sifting in the church, it reminds me of a story in the book of Judges. Gideon, in, Gideon, in Judges chapter 6 and 7, Gideon is leading an army of 32,000 men. Gideon has 32,000 men at his side, and he's leading them against an army of 135,000 Midianites. 32,000 Versus 135,000. They are greatly outnumbered. I want us to get a real feel for how outnumbered Gideon is in this moment. So I need a volunteer. Greg, can I ask you to stand up? Thanks for volunteering, man. Okay, Greg. Thanks, Greg. Greg is Gideon, all right? I need, I need four other guys to stand up. Peter, can you stand up for me? So, can you stand up for me? Patrick, stand up for me. 
Bob, you want to stand up for me? All right. So these are the odds, 32,000 versus 135,000. It would be like saying, okay, Greg, these four guys are going to attack you, and you've got you've to gotta beat all these four guys. You think you can do it? <laughs> maybe. Maybe. All right. Hold on. Stay standing. I need, I need nine more people to stand up. Nine more people. Seth, you want to stand up for me? Kurt, stand up for me. One, one two, three, uh, over here. Four. I need, I, let's see, one, two, three, four. I need five, six. I need three more. Seven, eight, nine. There we go. Okay. Here's, here's what happens. God reduces the army from 32,000 men to 10,000 men, and now the odds are 14 to 1. So it would be like saying, Greg, now you're going to take on everybody else that's standing. This is, these are your odds, all right? Now God says, no, 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 you still have too much, Gideon, so everybody in the room stand up. The odds now go, the odds now go from 14 to 1. It's now 300. He reduces Gideon's army to 300 men, and now it's 300 versus 135,000. The odds are now 250 to 1. Now, Greg, the rest of the church is coming out. In fact, we have to double, we have to triple our church size, and they're all coming after you. These are the odds that Gideon is facing. You guys can have a seat now. Gideon is greatly outnumbered, 250 to 1. This is how God grows, grows people, grows an army. He shrinks it. This is how God has a victory. He shrinks his army. Let's read Judges 7, verses 2 through 8. You want to know what the selection process was like? How did God determine out of the 32,000 men that were there at the beginning of Gideon's army, what was the selection process like? How did God determine which 300 guys were going to remain? And this is the selection process in Judges 7. Let me turn there myself. Judges 7, verses 2 through 8. He says this. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. Imagine being Gideon in this moment. What are you talking about? Too many men. He said, I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel will boast against me. My own strength has saved me. He's worried about Israel getting all hot-headed about defeating, defeating the Midianites. Verse 3, now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. Anyone who trembles with fear. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. And the odds are now 14 to 1. Verse 4, but the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. What? Take them down to the water, and I will thin them out for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water, and there the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. Verse 6, 300 of them drank from cupped hands, lapping, uh, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. 
So Gideon sent the rest of Israel home, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and the trumpets of the others. What was the selection process like? How did God determine who would stay? The first sifting, God said, I'm looking for people with fearless faith. I'm looking for those who are not afraid. If anybody here is trembling with fear, send them home. I'm looking for people with fearless faith. These, one, these are the ones who are willing to die for their people. They live sacrificially, and they desire to protect their people above their own lives. These are the ones who had fearless faith. And these were also the ones who determined in their minds what would happen if they did nothing. If I don't do something, if I don't stay and fight, then I know what's going to happen to my people. And so they determined to stay. They had fearless faith. That was the first sifting that took place. The second sifting was this. After the 10,000 people were there, God says, I'm looking for people who are staying alert. I'm looking for people who are watching. So he said, take everybody down to the water. And those who get down on their knees and drink straight from the water, those guys have their head in the water. They can't see what's going on. But those who kneel down and cup the water with their hands with spear in hand, keeping their eyes on the horizon as they drink, those are the ones that I want. Gideon, you keep those men because they are staying alert. They are watching what's coming. They've got their spear in hand, and they're ready. They're not getting distracted. They're not putting their heads down. Gideon, the 300 that I want with you, I want them to have fearless faith, and I want them to be alert and always watching what's coming next. The 300 that were remaining, they were listening. They were watching. They were ready to act. They never let their guards down. They keep one hand on the spear at all times with their eyes up at the horizon, watching for what's coming at them. God knew that what he was about to ask them to do was absolutely crazy. If you don't know the rest of the story, God takes these 300 men, and at night he has them surround the Midianite camp, and he says, Gideon, on my command, have your men smash the jars and blow their trumpets and, and light their torches and yell as loud as you can. And so the 300 men surrounded the Midianite camp, and they smashed the jars and blew the trumpets, and they yelled as loud as they could. And when the Midianites came out of their tent, they saw that they were surrounded, and they panicked, and they began to kill each other. And God took care of it. God gave the victory to Gideon. God knew that what he was about to ask them to do was absolutely crazy. And only a certain kind of person would obey orders and keep rank with those kind of instructions. I'm going to tell them to do something that's just, you just don't do in the military, Gideon. I'm going to tell them to do something that sounds ludicrous, just like Joshua marching around the city. You want Jericho? Just do circles around it. Just keep walking. It'll come down. Don't worry. It's absolutely insane. But with these 300 men, he delivered an entire nation for 40 years. Here's what the Lord is communicating through this story. And here's what I believe the Lord wants to do as we listen to Paul's instructions in Romans 12. It takes a certain kind of crazy person 
to obey those instructions in Romans 12. It takes a certain kind of person that God, God says, you want victory? Do you want people to come to know me? Do you want, do you want people to give their lives to me? Here's what you got to do. Feed your enemy. Give them something to drink. Love those who persecute you. Love those who hate you. Love one another despite what they say to you. If they're not showing you honor and respect, I don't care. You go first. You show them love and honor first. It takes a certain kind of crazy person to obey those instructions. But here's what the Lord is saying through this. He's saying, I can do more with a few whose hearts are committed than many whose hearts are not. I can do more with a few people, a few minority who are burning in their spirits for me, who have passion for sharing my love with the world. I can do more with those people. A couple years ago, our churches were full. Mega churches. Churches all over the country were full of people who, they put on a show on Sunday morning. They came with smiles on their faces, and they'd go home, and they, they wouldn't think, they wouldn't have another thought about Jesus or sharing the love of God with anybody else throughout the week. And God was sifting those people out. Because he says, I can do more with a few whose hearts are burning than with many whose hearts are not. So I, I want to ask you, church, this morning to search your heart. Search your heart. I want to talk specifically about this church. About desert church. Because when you belong to a church, when you, when you come to a church, when you're part of a church family, there are, there's a commitment that takes place. What, what we've made church is, it's like, it, it, what we've done is, is we say, well, you know, I'll attend that church for as long as it doesn't ruffle my feathers. And then as soon as it ruffles my feathers, somebody says something to me. I have a, an issue with somebody in the church. I'll just go to the church across town. I don't think that that's the way that God designed the church. I don't think that's how it's supposed to be. I believe seasons change, and I believe people have other assignments, that God releases people from certain assignments, and he, he brings them to another assignment. He gives them a new family. I believe that happens, but I don't think we're supposed to take that lighthearted. I don't think we're supposed to willy-nilly say, okay, I'm going to try this out for as long as it doesn't offend me before I go find another group of people that, that like me, that laugh with me, that, that don't, don't ruffle my feathers. So I want to ask you this morning, has God called you to this people to become a participating member of this community? Has he called you to this place to labor with us in the harvest field? To partner with us in the mission that God has given us to bring his presence to dry and thirsty places? Has he called you at this time for this season of your life? Will you stay until God sends you to another assignment? In other words, is Jesus giving you to us? And is he giving us to you? Will you put down roots here, build relationships, and love flawed people, imperfect people? Will you help us to fulfill our assignment to bring God's life-giving presence into dry places? And it's okay if the answer is no. 
My prayer is that you would find the church that God has called you to. This doesn't sound like your typical message from a pastor this morning, does it? I'm not saying leave our church. I'm saying has God, has God called you here? And if he has, will you participate? Will you be, will you be in the game with us? We got one yes. That's right. And like I said, if the answer is no, my prayer is that you'd find a church that you would, you'd find your family. You'd find a church family that God has called you to. If you got more questions about our church, what it means to be an active participant here, our grow class right after church, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk more about what our mission is and what, uh, what, our, what our vision is and, and how you can participate in that and what it means to be a participating member of our church. And I'd love to see you there at grow class after church. But in the meantime, ponder those three questions. Has, has God called you to this people, to this place, at this time? Are you here because he has given you to us and he's given us to you as a family? Because one thing I believe about the church is, is that we truly are a community that God has, God has given us to one another. We're, we're, we're not here by accident, but we are here to strengthen, to comfort, to encourage, to equip one another for a greater purpose, a greater assignment that God has for us. And it's not on accident. And so I'm committed to loving people who have issues with me. I say stupid things all the time, from the stage and off the stage. I'm committed to loving people who have, uh, who have an issue with me, to, to talking it out with them, to resolving whatever that conflict is, to try to live at peace with people at all times. I'm committed to that with you, church. And my prayer is that you would be committed to do the same with others who are sitting to your left and right, to do that with me, to be able to love flawed people. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to worship you, this opportunity to be with our family. I pray, God, that you would foster in each of us, that you would grow in each of us an unconditional love, a heart that is sacrificial, that is generous, that puts others first before ourselves. God, we want to be the church that you always planned. Lord, we, we pray for our individualism. We pray for our consumer mentalities and our independence. And Father, I pray that we would learn to become more dependent upon you, more interrelational with the people around us. And, Father, you draw our hearts, knit our hearts together because I believe that you are bringing the church, you are preparing the church for a season unlike any other. And in order to do that, we have to be united. We have to be together with one another. Help us to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. And the church said, amen, amen. Well, love you, church. Um, Please come to Grow Class if you'd love to. Uh, if you'd like to know more, it's gonna. I'll be in there in about 15 minutes, and we'll we'll start our Grow Class. We'll see you later.